1: And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Supreme Court decisions and budget cuts, a lightning round on controversies in our first Pride Month spotlight.
0: We cover all of this and talk about Matthew Stewart's article, The Birth of the New American Aristocracy. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Thank you to everyone who has been part of our membership drive on Patreon. And if you aren't new to Patreon but have been with us for a long time, thank you for supporting our work. We have lots of good bonus content coming up for you. Our bonus episode for the month of May is up. We talk about incels and sex and politics and the intersection of all kinds of strange things. It was wide ranging in typical fashion. So, hope you. You'll go there and check it out. And then as we do our Pride Month minutes, just like we did for Women's History Month, we'll be featuring someone from the LGBTQ community on every Tuesday episode of Pantsuit Politics this month. And we will have extended coverage just telling you more about the life and work of the individuals that we highlight here on Patreon as well. So we hope you'll check out patreon.com/slash pantsuitpolitics.
1: We're gonna dive in fast today, and we're gonna start with something new. We've decided that sometimes nobody wants to listen until we talk about what everybody's talking about. So, we're going to talk about what everybody's talking about. We're going to do it in a lightning round because we think this stuff is important because everybody's talking about it, but maybe not worth a full show. So, we're going to set a timer and we're going to try to spend about two minutes per controversy.
0: Are you up for it, Beth? I'm ready. I think this is a good way to cut through it because we have this profound realization that you can't just ignore. What everyone is discussing, but also that we do not have to devote 20 percent or 50 percent of our show to what everybody's talking about if we don't think it's what everybody should be talking about. So I'm excited about this. I think let's get it done. Okay, I'm going to set a literal stopwatch.
1: The first one we're going to do is the Trump pardon memo. Go, Beth.
0: This is just lawyers being lawyers, and we should shut up about it and let Robert Mueller do his work.
1: I agree. When I was listening to NPR, I started listening to their segment, and they said today the president's lawyers argued, and I thought we should all stop listening after lawyers argued. That's all they're doing. They're just making That's an argument. That's what they do. That's what they get paid to do. They're making an argument. Done. That was only thirty seconds. Let's, we're okay. gonna. Okay, let's I want to save the minute and thirty for our third one. Okay. <laughs> so next up, two minutes or less on Roseanne and Samantha Bee.
0: This has nothing to do with the First Amendment because these are private actions. We can all arrive at different conclusions. We've spilled plenty of ink on why these comments are different. I will tell you that if I were the chief executive of an outlet that employed either Roseanne or Samantha Bee, I would have fired both of them because I don't think this is helpful. But I also would have fired a long list of men who've been engaging in the same kind of vulgarity before either of them. And I do think that there's a double standard at work. Yeah, I
1: think it's different. A white lady call, comparing a black lady to an ape and one white lady calling another white lady a see you next Tuesday are different. That's Samantha Bee's job is to push the envelopes. So I would not fire her. But I'm also- also very uncomfortable I realized with the Roseanne conversation because I don't want to pat ABC on the back like they're some moral arbiter because the truth is they should have never hired her in the first place if they were concerned about this form of controversy because her history of saying incendiary ridiculous things on Twitter was long so you should have just never given her a bigger platform to start with and I'm not going to pat you on the back for
0: firing her now and to wrap this up we don't all have to agree on these things. Mm-hmm. Reasonable people can come to different conclusions. And that is the beauty of the private sector where we can have these conversations and robust debate. But it doesn't have to be a moral test mm-hmm. whether you would mm-hmm. or wouldn't um, fire either of these people. Like this is this is what it's supposed to be. They're doing their art. Right. Yep. And, and they're being themselves. And we got to take all that stuff together. Ooh, That was only a minute 30. So now we have two minutes plus
1: two minutes. So we have four whole minutes on the Bill Clinton interview, which I think we're going to need. You uh, want to start this one, Sarah? I'll start it. So Bill Clinton is doing interviews with James Patterson because they wrote a book that I will not be reading. He is not surprisingly being asked about the Me Too movement. Specifically, would he do things differently? So my first issue with this is I don't think this is a good format. He's not there to talk. Not that I don't think they should ask the question, but it's just it's prone to sound bites and clips and headlines. Like I think Bill Clinton needs to go on like a big, long 60-minute interview with Oprah where he can really not be on the defensive the whole time because he is at his worst when he's on the defensive and really spend some time thinking about this because I was super frustrated. I could tell the conversation was being edited. He wasn't listening to what the guy was asking. The guy wasn't listening to the fact that Bill Clinton had the question all wrong. It's like he thought he thought he was being compared to Harvey Weinstein, which he is full of faults. I don't think he's Harvey Weinstein. and But he's also should have just said, yeah, I apologize to her. I did things wrong. But he he wraps it. He couldn't, maybe because he's being asked about impeachment, he can't He cannot parse apart what happened between him and Monica Lewinsky and the whole political turmoil and impeachment that came after it. Like, he just puts them together, and they're not—they're different. Stop talking about them like they're the same exact thing. Talk about what happened between you and her and why that was wrong. And why you should have done things differently because you were older and you were bossing the president of the freaking United States. And then you can talk about maybe this would have led to this and the standards were different. I do think I was treated unfairly X, Y, Z, whatever. But
0: like bringing up women you hire and all like it just nobody was listening
1: to each other. That was my frustration.
0: I have no emotional attachment to the Clintons whatsoever. And I got choked up watching this because to me it was such a reminder. I, I don't need anything from Bill Clinton today. But it was such a reminder of how as empowering as the past year may have felt, there is such a long road to go Mm -hmm. to people having a genuine and authentic sense of remorse for how we've treated each other. And specifically for how men in powerful positions have used that power and how women in not powerful positions are confused and compromised and gaslighted often. And it was just very depressing to me, and I cannot believe that he's had 20 years to prepare for those questions, and that's the best he could do.
1: Yeah, he just, he's, like I said, I think he's so bad. Listen, not even him. We're all bad when we're defensive. We all are at our worst when we're trying to defend ourselves in that way. Like, you just, you can't be authentic. Your brain plays all kinds of monkey tricks on you, I think. I'm really bad when I'm defensive. And I just, there's a few things where he was like, i spent 20 years working through how I got there and trying to make a difference. And then the reporter said that he talked after the cameras were off, he was more forthcoming about the change in standards and how he sees things differently. And I'm like, see, that's, we need to get him where he doesn't feel defensive. And really, because that's, you know, it's a hard thing to ask for someone. It's a hard thing to ask of someone. Like just in a human being to say, hey, you, you had this huge, terrible screw up that cost the country and your family and was really hard. Quick on camera, tell us what we all should learn from that. You know, I, I don't know. It's just not the right format for it. I think if given the right
0: circumstances, he could do a better job, and he did a really really bad one there. I guess the final thing that I'll say about it then is I understand why it riled Clinton mm-hmm. to be having this conversation while Trump is the president. Yeah, I totally yeah, get that. That was the other thing. Yeah, you're right. That but, was way. But the thing that we've said many times about Me Too and other situations, and I think to go along, Sarah, with your point about defensiveness, we don't advance any conversation. When anybody, whether they are on the moral high ground or not, returns to what about this Mm -hmm. or false equivalency that like we are stuck in rhetorical purgatory Mm -hmm. because that's all we want to do to each other right now. And it would really help us to just talk about the thing that is in front of us. And this was his opportunity to do that. And I am really sad for him and for all of us that he blew it.
1: Four minutes and 20 seconds. Overall, I think our lightning round went well.
0: I'm really excited now to spend more than four minutes on special forces in Africa because I think that this is deserving of that kind of attention. Okay. So, we learned from the New York Times that Secretary Mattis is concerned that America's special forces are spread too thin in the world. Mm. How does that sound to you, Sarah? That sounds important. It sounds important and correct, right? Doesn't that sound correct? We have 7,300 special forces operating in 92 countries. Just Looking at 92 countries took my breath away, Mm -hmm. even though I probably would have guessed higher if I were guessing, you know, but it's still breathtaking to me how much we try to do in the world. Mm -hmm. There was a review ordered after troops were killed in Niger, which we talked about on the podcast, and I want to come back to before we leave this segment. But this review could result in cutting special forces in Africa by half over the next three years. And part of what the review is looking at is how we have growing threats from Russia and China that are calling special forces into the Baltic states, for example. Then there's just North Korea and Iran hanging out there as well. So there's plenty of work to do. Um, According to the New York Times, about 1,200 troops are on missions in Africa, and they face the most immediate likelihood of reductions. The Africa Command has been asked how it would conduct its counterterrorism missions on the continent if the number of commandos there was cut by 25 percent over 18 months and by 50 percent over three years. That would leave about 700 troops, roughly the same number as in 2014, according to data from the Africa Command Special Operations Branch. And then here's the part that I thought was really interesting. By comparison, there were 70 special operations troops on the continent in 2006. We went from 70 in 2006 to 1,200 in 2018. Wow. Wow. I think that's really important because I think most Americans, I mean, most Americans had no idea where Niger was Mm -hmm. before we lost lives there. And we've talked before many times about how difficult it is to say that we really support the troops when we have no idea what the troops are doing Mm -hmm. and where. And I fully understand that special forces in particular, there are good reasons that we don't know what they're doing and where they are and that there is safety and security and confidentiality sometimes. But, man, that's a lot of people out doing a lot of risky things. And it's not
1: just misunderstanding what our troops are doing, it's also not being able to hold our military and elected officials responsible for policies that we think uphold our values or support the objectives of the United States because we don't even understand what we're doing. How could we be a good democracy holding people responsible if we're not even aware
0: I think that's right. And it makes me really grateful, again, for a lot of work that's being done quietly in the Trump administration. This report about Niger has really ruffled some feathers Uh, because it exposed a very hard-charging, risk-taking culture in the special forces running up against, you know, the military bureaucracy, which is more cautious. And that's an important debate. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's hard to have that debate in the abstract. If we don't understand how it plays out on the ground across the
0: world, how are we going to talk about it? So from the New York Times, this is a characterization of the impact of the Niger report. American commandos in Africa are now sent only on missions with local forces that are determined to have significant strategic effect, like building a new base or clearing extremists from a large area. Armed drones or other protective aircraft must accompany such missions. Mm. If those conditions are not met, the American troops will work from the fortified command centers to advise African forces on intelligence, logistics, artillery, and other aspects of big operations that are important, but not as prominent as frontline combat against a range of groups aligned with Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. A Pentagon investigation into the Niger attack found a general lack of command oversight at every echelon. Wow. Army commandos saw the findings as an attack on the culture of the special operations forces by high-ranking conventional military officers who did not understand the nature and demands of the job in difficult environments. That's
1: interesting. Because, But again, how are we if they don't feel like high-ranking conventional military officers understand this, how are our politicians going to understand it? How are the people going to understand it? So, I mean, do they want just a blank check, just trust us because under- we
0: understand and nobody else does? When I saw the headline on this, I thought, I have no reaction to this headline because how could I? Mm-hmm. Because we don't have good information about this. Right. I have no idea whether drawing down our special forces in Africa is, is good policy or not good policy. But if you think about What affects our culture. I've been thinking so much about the intersection of the military and law enforcement and how the good guys, bad guys culture and the gun culture and sort of our general aggressiveness all come together and influence almost every aspect of our lives. I do think more Reporting and interest and accountability and transparency to the extent possible around activity like this is key to making change in lots of seemingly unrelated areas. I don't know if I'm expressing that thought well.
1: No, I think that's right. You know, when we can't easily pick out our partisan position because we're just talking about whether or not Donald Trump should have called the widow of the special operations soldier that was killed in Niger. And we're arguing about that. You know, that's the easy, passionate, I know where I stand conversation to have. I think people are just hesitant when it doesn't fall in line like that.
0: Well, and I think that's why this story is harder to pick up steam than Samantha B. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we can all sit in our living rooms and decide if we're offended by something or not. It's so much harder to dive into this whole world that is scary and dangerous and then asks for incredible sacrifices from people and that does not have any easy answers. But I think we need to do that. And another thing that came up in this reporting that segues to our next topic is the importance of our alliances, because had French allies not come to the aid and Nigerian local forces not come to the aid of our soldiers, probably a lot more people would have died during what happened in Niger. And I am very, very frightened that we are economically alienating so many allies that that kind of help and assistance is going to be jeopardized in the future.
1: The thing that frightens me most is how we are isolating ourselves in the world economically foreign policy wise, even militarily, the idea that we would look to our economic allies like Canada and Japan and Germany and try to bully them and try to force them into this again, total scarcity mindset, total I'm only winning if you're losing is such a short sighted, ridiculous view of our global economy and our standing within it. Although I think in some ways there is a way to think about this, that if we are if we're leaving the table, China is going to come to it. So if you if you insist on seeing the world that way, if we are leaving these deals, China is more than happy to sit at the table and make alliances. Um, I read a very interesting take on the TPP that someone said, you know, the reason the TPP was so valuable is because we were excluding China, basically, because we were all joining together to sort of with these. Uh, Pacific partners to, you know, even take a stab at the the power of China in that region. I just I'm so concerned that about what happens and who sits at the table when we on unsi- when we insist on leaving because of short sighted reasons.
0: So if you have not been following the news closely over the past few days, the United States has imposed tariffs on Mexico, the EU and Canada. And there's been pretty sharp outcry from leaders of those countries and uncharacteristically direct outcry from Justin Trudeau and Emmanuel Macron in particular about how foolish and short-sighted this move is. One of the things I want to make sure that we talk about, our listener Amy asked us in a direct message on Instagram about why Steel and aluminum are talked about in the national security context, and I don't have any expertise on this, but my understanding from what I've read is that you can think about steel and aluminum as important to national security because they are part of almost all defense systems. We must have the capacity to manufacture enough steel and aluminum to make the weapons and materials and structures that our military needs. We for sure do right now. I mean that mm-hmm. you can you can keep that concern, um, and it is important. It's important to all of our infrastructure. I mean, look, we have to have steel and aluminum. It's not like these are trivial matters. This is very important to our roads and bridges and every aspect of the American economy. We we have that. Mm-hmm. A point that Prime Minister Trudeau made in his interview with Chuck Todd over the weekend is that, you know, there's a lot of Canadian steel and aluminum in U.S. fighter jets Mm -hmm. and missile defense systems. And so that partnership with Canada has been a way to protect our national interests, really, to ensure that we keep that supply open. I think that there is the potential, I'm going to say the potential, even though I think it is the reality, that the administration is conflating how much money do people in the American steel and aluminum industries make With a national security concern? Mm. I think those are two different questions. How profitable is it to manufacture this stuff in the United States is different from do we actually have the resources and supply to make this stuff in the United States? I guarantee you that if the United States suddenly, for national security reasons, had a need for lots, lots, lots more steel and aluminum, we would find a way. There are enterprising people who would find a way to make that happen. Right. We also wanted to take a
1: moment to say the Supreme Court released several decisions while we were beginning to record this episode. Primarily, the one that is making the most news is the Colorado Baker decision, which is Masterpiece cake shop versus the colorado civil rights commission for anybody who doesn't know um jack phillips was a baker in colorado a gay couple came in and asked him to um, make a wedding cake he said he could not because he was a devout christian and he was opposed to gay marriage he offered to sell them another cake but he said he personally could not make the cake it went before the colorado civil rights division they found a probable cause for violation and then he had a formal hearing they rejected his First Amendment claims that requiring him to create a cake for the couple would violate his right to free speech and free exercise of religion, and it went to the Supreme Court. Okay, so in a seven-two decision with Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor dissenting, um, and Justice Kennedy writing the decision, they found that they did in fact violate his the free exercise of his religion, primarily turning on the way in which the commission heard his claim. they The Supreme Court felt that the commission did not give him a neutral hearing and that religious and philosophical objections to gay marriage are protected views and that in some instances protected forms of expression. They just felt like the commission um, was overly hostile to his religion, that they did not exhibit the same neutrality they gave when bakers came in not wanting to make anti-gay uh, messages on cakes. So the hostility and the different treatment of Bakers on the other side of the issue is why they found that they he did not receive a neutral hearing. And so they sided with the Supreme, with the Baker in Colorado. After we record, I'll read the decision and I will be on the Nightly Nuance on Monday night. So if you're hearing this podcast on Tuesday and you're a patron, you can go listen to the Nightly Nuance later with my extended thoughts on this case.
0: I get an email from Equality Ohio, the organization that we've had on the podcast before. It does really great work and one thing that they said in their alert about this is that this case could have gone in a lot of different mm-hmm. directions including undermining inclusive non-discrimination protections. And it didn't undermine right. those protections and that that's important. That the the protections are valid, the way that they were enforced here is the problem. Right, right. But we will continue to discuss lots of Supreme Court activity. So rude that they didn't check with Uh, us on our recording schedule before doing this. But here we are. But we'll stay in touch with you. And that is the beauty of social media. And now we will talk about the downsides of it (laughs) because we have learned that Facebook isn't finished dealing with the fallout of sharing our data widely and freely. Oh,
1: Facebook. You made some choices. Most of them were bad.
0: You know, I think this is hard. So the news is that Facebook had data sharing partnerships in place with device makers, and that Facebook thought of Apple and Samsung and Microsoft and Blackberry as extensions of Facebook. (laughs) Like, I guess if you're attached to Facebook, you just become part of the family. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to offer features like like buttons and messaging and address books on phones that people enjoy. But. Even when you explicitly said, I don't want third parties to get my information on Facebook, that didn't extend to the device makers. Several former Facebook engineers have said, whoa, this really went pretty far. And Ashkan Soltani, a research and privacy consultant who formerly served as the chief technologist at the FTC said to the New York Times, it's like having door locks installed only to find out that the locksmith also gave keys to all of his friends so they can come through and rifle through your stuff without having to ask you for permission. So it's a pretty big deal and definitely something that Facebook is going to have to address. Although When I step back and read these stories, Sarah, I just continue to think we're just in a new world that we don't know how to deal with yet. Here's what I thought
1: about. Do you remember over spring break when I was at your house and you watched an interview on MSNBC with Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, and he was super moralizing about Facebook and how their product and they de- they protect everybody's information. And we, we don't do what Facebook does because you're not the product. We sell products. Oh, wait, but you take it from them. Cool. Right. As you <laughs> set up there and you're moralizing about how superior Apple was to Facebook because you respected people's data. I mean, I don't think Facebook is the only one to blame in this story. I think we should also look at the device makers and said, why did you need information you did not have permission to have? Can you explain that to me? Because you should be held responsible for this end of the, your end of the transaction as
0: well. And it's all such a balancing act because we like those features, right? We love to be able to log in with Facebook so we don't have to remember another login and password. We like to be able to hit like on something and learn more about it over time. I think constantly about we love Alexa in my house. And Alexa is the equivalent of a hot mic open Mm -hmm. all the time. And Alexa is collecting our shopping list. I mean, the amount of data that you can get from Alexa is a astonishing. And yet we've consented to this kind of I mean, she almost feels like a member of our family, right? Because she's such a part of the way we run our household. And we know those risks. And so I think we're all just having to grapple with what does this mean? And what do we want to do from here? Because we want the upside.
1: Absolutely. I still
0: have a Facebook account. I've learned an awful lot about Facebook that I don't like. I haven't deleted my account.
1: Yep, it's really, really, really difficult. I had a conversation with two of my friends, one who was arguing, you know, we read an article from Henry Kissinger warning about the sort of the pressure that the growth of artificial intelligence will put on our democracy. And I said, I don't, I don't think we'll get to the point where the AIs take over, like in um, the Stanley Kubrick film. But I think that it is highly likely that the technology damages our institution to such a point that the repercussions will be strong enough that people will opt out and say, nope, I think it's already that way. I think people are using Facebook less and less. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but I do think some of it is privacy concerns and um, concerns about their, its interaction in our political sphere. So, you know, I think that'll be its own type of check on the, on the technology, but I think that check will come at great cost to
0: our institutions as it already has. We wanted to celebrate Pride Month by highlighting LGBTQ individuals and their contributions to our personal and political spheres. And I am starting today with Anise Parker. She's currently the president and CEO of the Victory Fund, which recruits, trains, and elects out public officials at all levels of government. Anise Parker was the mayor of Houston for three terms. She was hugely popular. This is Houston, Texas, right? For three terms, she was the mayor there. She was elected to public office in Houston nine times. Wow! She is such a no-nonsense, intelligent, pragmatic political officer. I've watched several videos of her talking about her work and she's just very focused and the kind of person that you think you just need to be in charge of everything. You know, she has that. She instills that sense of confidence. She focused a lot on economic development and infrastructure during her time as mayor. She also passed a fairness ordinance in Houston. And there was some controversy about that, that I will talk more in an extended feature about her on Patreon. But today, in kind of keeping with Pride Month, I want to talk more about her personal life. She and her wife, Kathy Hubbard, were in an interview quoted as saying that they are so out that they live on the front lawn. (laughs) And they have invited so many people into their home to take on relationships as parents. And it's An unbelievably poignant reminder of how discrimination against the LGBTQ community in a very real way deprives children of loving families and deprives our economy of the stability that is created when families are stable and loving. Mm -hmm. At a pride parade in Houston, Anise Parker met a 16-year-old black gay male who was homeless at the time. And she just gave him the keys to her house and invited him to come live with her and Kathy. Wow. And he has lived with them on and off for years. And she talks about like he would live with them for six months and then they would launch him. Right. They would say, go out into the world and do your thing. And then sometimes he would come back and he calls them his mothers and they call him their son. And there's no formal relationship between these people. but. He speaks about them with such love and they about him. And it's a beautiful thing. And a 16-year-old child being virtually adopted is an unbelievably difficult thing. Mm -hmm. Imagine the outcomes in his life had she not just opened her home so freely to him. She and Kathy have also adopted two daughters. She speaks about the adoption process in a way that is so difficult to listen to and important to listen to. When these daughters were adopted out of foster care and their foster parents told the girls that going to live with lesbians would send them to hell, (gasps) they had to have extensive therapy in order to help the children cope with their situation. And now, of course, they're a loving family when the Supreme Court allowed uh, marriage equality one of the daughters called them immediately and said does this mean you guys are getting married i mean they're they're great now but this was unbelievably traumatic at the time and at the adoption hearing the judge made them wait an entire day through every other adoption that was on the docket and then had another judge come in and actually do their adoption oh because God. the judge did not believe it was appropriate These are the kinds of very real things that we have done to each other in this country that we still do to each other in this country because we think that we should impose our definition of marriage on other people. And I just want to say that I think from a pro-family perspective, we really need to think about what happens when two girls are about to be adopted out of foster care into a loving household by the mayor of Houston, and we still can't celebrate that process. They have another daughter with whom they do not have a formal relationship, but whom they've taken into their home and loved and um, helped become a a happy, productive human being. And I just think that Kathy and Anise Parker are an inspiration and have overcome an awful lot um, in order to serve the public in a way that is much more generous than the public has sometimes given back to them. So I really admire her as a public servant and as a mother and as a wife. And I am excited to talk more about her on Patreon. And
1: let's not forget about our my favorite story from when Barbara Bush passed away that Anise Parker said, again, Democratic gay mayor of Houston. And she said that Barbara Bush came up to her and said, you've done a very excellent job. I like your style. You could have been a Bush, which is like the ultimate compliment coming from Barbara (laughs) Bush. I love that story so much. Absolutely, You could have been a Bush to a gay Democratic mayor.
0: Love. Well, next up, we are going to talk about the new American aristocracy and the ways in which we divide ourselves in America economically.
1: Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour, Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, com/pansy Today we wanted to spend some time on one article. It's an article I read this weekend and immediately texted Beth and was like read this article right now. It's called The New American Aristocracy in the Atlantic. It was written by Matthew Stewart, who uses his own personal history. He had a great-grandfather that was sort of an oil baron, got caught up in the Teapot Dome scandal, and so he sort of would go to these country clubs and see the top 1%, but then go to back to his sort of traditionally middle-class experience. Now he lives in uh, the Bay Area, so he has a very upper-middle-class experience. And he he used this to, to make a point that a lot of writers are making right now, which is The income inequality is not just the purview of this top 1% that we see and sort of love to hate on The Real Housewives, but that there is a much larger proportion of American society that is participating in the economic inequality in real ways. He says, every piece of the pie picked up by the 0.1% in relative terms had come from the people below, but not everyone in the 99.9% gave up a slice. Only those in the bottom 90% did. At their peak, in the mid-1980s, people in this group held 35% of the nation's wealth. Three decades later, that had fallen 12 points, exactly as much as the wealth of the 0.1% rose. In between the top 0.1% and the bottom 90% is a group that has been doing just fine. It has held on to its share of a growing pie decade after decade. And as a group, it owns substantially more wealth than do the other two combined. In the tale of three classes, it is represented by the gold line floating high and steady while the other two duke it out. You'll find the new aristocracy there. We are the
0: 9.9%. So I think before we dive into talking about this article, which goes in a lot of different directions, all of them very interesting to me, it is important to pull out something that is mentioned a couple of times throughout the piece, almost in passing, but I think is one of the more compelling aspects of it, which is... We have a listening problem in the United States Mm -hmm. in that we internalize as personal any social critique. Yes. And so it was important to me in reading this to put down my defensiveness. And I think it's important for us in talking about it to do the same thing. And that's an ask that we want to make of you as listeners. Because I am certain that there are people listening to this podcast that are going to have a reaction to some of what we say as like, well, I live this way. And therefore, you must be saying that the way I live is wrong. Mm -hmm. And some of that applies to the two of us. I don't think either of us meet sort of the threshold to get into that 9.9% that he's talking about. But we are closer to it than the bottom 10%. And so we have characteristics that are presented in this article. And I don't think the point here is to shame or blame anybody. It is more to say, when we step back from this, what do we see with distance? And is this what we want? And I don't think that there are necessarily individual fixes to some of what we see when we step back from it. And, and we can talk more about what the fixes might look like. But I just want to I like that framing of we have a listening problem because we do this on everything. Right. Race, mm-hmm. wealth, you name it. And so can we start with no No one individually is being criticized. It is important for us to be able to from a, have a sense of security. Like we're all still at the table together here. And let's zoom out and examine the fact that we needed that to be a restoration hardware table.
1: <laughs> well, and that's what he taught. He goes through a lot of different things. He talks about marriage um, and how, you know, the the proportion of people in single family homes, particularly in the bottom 90% has ballooned. It used to be like 20%. Now it's like 75%. And how if you are college educated And you meet a partner in college, your chances of marital success and therefore the economic stability that flows from that are so much higher. So he talks about marriage. He talks about education, not just people pursuing college educations, but also um, public schools versus private schools. The statistics he had about Ivy League schools and the percentage of people that come from private schools that go to Ivy League schools really blew my mind. He talks about zip codes and real estate and the value of real estate, depending on where you live. Uh, He talks about the economic class of your parents. One of my favorite metaphors he uses is a rubber band so that if you're at the bottom of the economic ladder and you try to rise above your parents, that rubber band is very strong and has a tendency to pull you back. If you're at the top of the economic ladder and you fall, the rubber band attached to your parents above you sort of catches you and springs you back up and you have more um, opportunity. And what I love when he talks about all these things, he says, None of which is to suggest that individuals are wrong to seek a suitable partner and make a beautiful family. People should and presumably always will pursue happiness in this way. It's one of the delusions of our meritocratic class, however, to assume that if our actions are individually blameless, then the sum of our actions will be good for society. We may have studied Shakespeare on the way to law school, but we have little sense for the tragic possibilities of life. The fact of the matter is that we have silently and collectively opted for inequality, and that is what inequality does. It turns marriage into a luxury good and a stable family life into a privilege that the moneyed elite can pass along to their children. How do we think that's going to work out?
0: The thrust of this article to me, Sarah, and tell me if you read it this way, is less about what people have in their bank accounts. And more about all of the subtle and pervasive and kind of we we can't see the water ways Mm -hmm. that you start to behave as though you are both part of an aristocracy and constantly in danger of losing that status. Yeah.
1: Because we call it as a meritocracy, we place all this moral value on things that are basically privileges, opportunities that other people do not have in the same way that we do. So I had much more opportunity and availability to get a college education. I still had to work when I went to college to get into college and to get the good grades. And so all of a sudden it becomes something that I I was able to get all on my own. Reaping the benefits of that opportunity is morally right because I work so hard to get it when really there's much more to the story than that.
0: So I was talking to Chad about this article last night and and I told him I think that he and I live and, and you too to an extent Sarah, we we live in kind of a protected space in American society a little bit because the American dream looks pretty true for us. Mm -hmm. We grew up to families that were able to support themselves and that gave us a springboard to get even more education Mm -hmm. and make even more money than our parents did. Mm -hmm. Because of the way we grew up, we're pretty happy with the lifestyle that we have. And so we don't have this sense of this is all going to be taken away from me in a second That maybe we would have if we grew up a little bit more privileged. Mm -hmm. And we also have the sense of my parents are still there and will help us if we get into a terrible jam, which people on the other side don't. Right. Right. There are so many people who walk around with no safety net that we still have. And so it's easy for us to say, well, the meritocracy worked. I worked really hard in school. I got good grades, which helped me get scholarships, which helped me get a good job. But what I was saying to Chad is you know, it became clear to me once I got my really good job that the grades were enough to get you in the door. But to be successful in that really good job was going to take an unbelievably challenging persistence on my part. That wasn't true for people whose dads were lawyers in the Cincinnati community and who had all these friends, right, who could refer business to Mm me Mm -hmm. and who kind of knew the language of where to live and what restaurants to dine in and how to play golf and, and kind of this whole world that every single day made me feel like an imposter And I'm offering this example uh, not to complain about my life in any way, because my life has been magical by most standards. I'm offering it to say that we're all having these really different experiences. And I think when we zoom in in our own lives on places that give us a glimpse of what it might be like not to have every single advantage, it can help us develop greater empathy, because I, the reality is I still could have overcome that and been a successful, highly compensated lawyer. I have no doubt that if I wanted that life, I could have had it. It just would have been a little bit harder, which helps me think about All of the places along the way where it wasn't a little bit harder for Mm -hmm. me and what it would have been like if it had been a little bit harder. And what if it had been a little bit harder when I was eight years old instead of 18 or 28? Right. And what would it have been like if I had had fewer people helping me figure out that little shift than I had at 28 when I was making those decisions? And so I guess I'm just saying, how can we relate our personal experiences, not to say that they're all equal But to say, let me try to put myself in a different position and see what that would have felt like through the lens of the one time that maybe it was a little tougher for me. Well, and also, I think it's not
1: just about our individual lives, but what got us up there to begin with. So what I mean by that is I was able to go to college and I was taught that education was important. Because of some family values and some family experiences. Part of the reason that my mother was able to go to college and uh, my great aunt was able to go to college and I saw all these things is because my family had basically been able to gather wealth primarily through businesses and real estate that would have been totally unavailable to. Black or brown people at the time, like acquiring property in the way they did, running businesses the way they did, it just wasn't available. So I also I don't you know so much of the opportunities in my individual life were I I I got there because of choices and laws and structures that I had no place, no bargaining. You know he spends a lot of time on just your you know this sort of intergenerational. He calls it let's see what is it called? Hold on, intergenerational earnings elasticity, and it's just it's it's luck of birth. It's just luck of birth um, that I was able to pursue opportunities. And, you know, I think about my own kids and the luck of their birth. And, you know, am am I hoarding opportunities for them because of some definition of what I think success looks like? And, you know, I think not only about, like you say, thinking about empathy of people who didn't have opportunities, but I also try to look at the water and think opportunities for what like yes to do why do i want my kids to go to an ivy league school because they will earn a whole lot more that's true that's there's no there's no argument the statistic he has based on sort of the the elite school earning capacity is like two hundred fifty thousand, and sort of the colleges around where you where you and i went is like you know a hundred and something thousand it's a huge difference right But is my version of success that my kids graduate from college and earn the maximum capacity amount of money so they can afford overpriced real estate in the Bay Area? No, it's just it's not. And I and I think when this guy's writing about trying to get his kid into college and all the cost and all the pressure on the kids, and I just want to be like, y'all are everybody's fighting for this piece of the pie for a larger piece of the pie. Do you actually like the pie? Are you enjoying eating the pie? Is this? Are you happy pursuing your life? Would your kids be happy pursuing this life? Could you give up some of your pie? Because it's really not making you that much happier and it can make a huge difference on the other scale. Like I just that's what that's what I struggle with. I'm like, what are we all fighting for? Like Miss Meritocratic class. We've all been convinced that being the high paid lawyer defending the, you know, white collar client is the definition of happiness success. But I don't know a lot of attorneys that do that. He talks about a lot. He spends a lot of time on associations and like how the, an association that protects doctors and lawyers, which is basically like a cartel, is okay. But unions, no, that's not good. And I just want to say, like those, I don't know a lot of lawyers doing that really upper income work that are so, so happy. I just don't. I know a lot of that dropped out, but I don't know a lot of that do it, that just love those big paychecks and how happy they are working 80 hours a week. So I've, I don't know. There's a part of me that's like, even the 9.9%, I'm kind
0: of like, we're defending the gates of this castle. Do we like our perch? I'm not sure we do. There is so much of that, though. One of the biggest fights that I had in my career was over um, hiring someone without a college education Mm. for a position that I thought the person would do a great job in. And I wanted to hire the person. And it was a very we ultimately did. But it was a fight Mm. and it was a very ugly fight. And I don't understand why we all want to do that gatekeeping. Yeah. My college education is not made more valuable by closing the doors to people who didn't make the same choices. Mm-hmm. If there's a position for which someone is qualified and can do a good job and be successful and honestly have something to prove, nothing makes a better employee or worker than having a little something to prove in the process. Yep, I think that's part of why. We just had a conversation for The Nuance Life about women being successful on the internet. That's part of why, right? You got a little something to prove. You can go a really long way. And so I don't understand why we keep doing this, but we sure do. Yep. And the association stuff really hit home with me. Through a lot of licensing, we try to close the doors because it makes us feel more special. And and I think as I watch this, like, pundit debate over why Donald Trump was elected, Was it economic anxiety or racism? To me, those are both expressions of a fundamental insecurity that is motivating all of the problems that this article identifies and just about all of our problems generally, Mm -hmm. right? When we argue with each other on the internet about politics, it's almost all fear-based, no matter which angle you're coming from. Yep. And I just wonder what it is. This is your point about do we like the water? I don't. No, I do not like the water. I do not like living in a society where most of us seem to not just feel okay at the end of the day. Yep. And that's
1: the thing. It's, it's the hierarchy of needs, right? It's both things. People are economically unstable and they want to blame someone. And so race is the easy way to go. And there's that moment in the big short at the end where Steve Carell's character is like, they'll do what they always do, blame poor people and immigrants. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to vomit. That's exactly you know, like, yeah, we're doing it. Why, why can't we learn the lessons of history and stop? But, you know, I always say I've said in the past that the stereotypes of Democrats and Republicans are that. You know, Democrats blame rich people and Republicans blame poor people. This is a stereotype. I don't think all people do that. And like, how's either of those working for us? Like, deciding that there has to be an enemy instead of saying we're all in this together. The pie is not evenly divided. We have to work on that. I don't understand another – instead of just recreating, you know, tariff wars that got us into the Great Depression and blaming immigrants and blaming black and brown people, I don't – it's so frustrating. It's like the March of Folly. Let's just
0: keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. And it's sad. One of the things that I read this morning preparing for the show was about uh, Macron having a call with Trump about the tariffs. And – The commentary was that Macron thought that he could speak pretty candidly because of the relationship that he has worked on developing with President Trump. And the call went really badly Mm. because President Trump doesn't respond to criticism. Yep. And my immediate thought based on personal experience with someone who I think has a very Trumpian approach to life was, no, there is no relationship with a person like that. Mm. There can't be. When a person is not fundamentally okay, feet on the ground, I know that I am fine. In in not an economic way, but a life way. Just a human, I am okay. You can't be in relationship with that person. And I think that's true of our president right now. But I think it's true of lots of us. Mm -hmm. When you have this sense of I have to be chasing all the time you really don't have any room to experience the love of other people i think that does lead to racism discrimination against the lgbtq community it it leads to fundamentalism in religion it leads to militant anti-theism right not atheism but that sense of if you're religious at all you are stupid and wrong and harming the world constantly to me, all of these expressions of kind of our most acrimonious and vehement beliefs are rooted in just not being okay and not feeling like I can roll with some ambiguity. And that's coming to bear economically in a way that is really preventing other people from meeting their families' needs and having an opportunity to do a little better than the previous generation. And I think that's so Hard. I think that we,
1: at least I, understand fundamentally that we are all connected. And I think I understand deep down that sometimes my advantages, my conveniences that make my life easier and more enjoyable come at the cost of somebody else. But we can't just brag about money because that's not acceptable. And that's not that's why he calls it the new aristocracy, because, well, that's not what we do anymore. He says these special forms of wealth offer the further advantages that they are both harder to emulate and safer to brag about than high income alone. Our class walks around in the jeans and T-shirts inherited from our supposedly humble beginnings. We prefer to signal our status by talking about our organically nourished bodies, the awe-inspiring feats of our offspring and the ecological correctness of our neighborhoods. We have figured out how to launder our money through higher virtues. And I think that's what I think about a lot. Like, yeah, if I can express these values on my street, that's a good place to start. But at what expense
0: am I at whose expense am I doing all of this? It just hit me hard when I read all the, all of the stuff about the subtlety of this mm-hmm. in this article. And, and I'll give you a really concrete example. Um, Ellen, my three, my two year old is about to turn three in June. And I do not want gifts at her birthday party. I just become more convinced with time that children's birthday parties are out of control and a symbol of lots of issues. And now, if you love children's birthday parties and more presents than Christmas or any other holiday, hooray for you. And I'm not judging you. But for me, I don't want that. And so her birthday is coming up. We're gonna have people come get together. We're gonna have like ice cream party. So I was making the invitation and I wanted to say... No gifts. And I struggled so much with what to say. and then I thought, just write what is true for you. And so I wrote, Ellen has more than any three-year-old kid need. If you would like to commemorate her birthday in some way, please consider a donation to the emergency shelter of Northern Kentucky.
1: Mm.
0: And then I read it and I thought, does that sound braggy? <laughs> Ellen has more than she needs. <laughs> Do you know you know what I mean? Yeah, because it's so deeply embedded in us to not act like we're okay. Yes. And and like, I thought, does that sound like, I don't know. Is that a problem? I just sent it. I, d- I stopped thinking about it and sent it because it is objectively true. We do not have all the money in the world, but we have plenty of toys. So many that I can't keep them all put away. And I just, she doesn't need any more. And I think that's a good lesson for her. It's your birthday. We'll do some special things and it'll be really fun. You don't need every person who comes here to bring you a gift. And I want to be able to have those conversations with my girls and with myself. You know, it's our anniversary. I don't need anything. And I think that that just, it's hard and it's uncomfortable and it's messy because part of what this 9.9% that, that bubbles out a little bit, <laughs> bubbles down a little bit, I guess, gives you is a sense of, yeah, but there's always more, right? And I could have more and nicer and newer and we're doing fine but like we're not doing great. There's just this kind of false humility that gets woven into your DNA when you're even close to this position in our economy.
1: And I think what I always struggle with reading these articles and thinking particularly about income inequality. He has he has some very specific recommendations. He talks about at the end of the day that this is a fe- that some of these are a federal government problem. The monopoly in our information economy is a problem the federal government is uniquely suited to solve. The uh, the licensing issues, the cartel run by doctors and lawyers, You know, I can't solve that as an individual. And I think that's what I always struggle with. I struggle with, I read this and I agree, I don't want to live in a world and I don't want my children to grow up in a world with this level of income inequality, but I feel so powerless when I read an article like this and I Feel so powerless. And I get in this mindset where I'm like, well, I need to cancel Amazon. We need to go live on a farm and only support ourselves and sustainably live. But, you know, that's not going to solve. That's going to make me feel better, but it's not going to solve the problem for the child in the bottom 30%, right? And I think that's so hard. It's so hard to walk that feeling powerless and. Feeling like you're in this huge system and how do you participate? How do you improve it? And as he he is known to do, Richard Rohr sent the perfect email this morning. Not that he knew that I was reading this article, but it was called The Third Way. It says, We stand in the middle, neither taking the world on from another power position or denying it for fear of the pain it will bring. We hold the hardness of reality and the suffering of the world until it transforms us, knowing that we are both complicit in evil and can participate in wholeness and holiness, Once we can stand in that third spacious way, neither directly fighting or fleeing, we are in the place of grace out of which genuine newness can come. And that's what I try to do on this podcast and in my life. I just try to hold space for both that knowing that I am complicit in a system and knowing that I will hold witness to it until and every day that I can find a way to improve it and make better in my own choices. Um, both on an individual level and a societal level, and to just keep showing up for these conversations, keep showing up for change. I know that feels daunting in our
0: current political environment, but I don't know any other way. So I want to say from a more, I don't even know what to call myself, in a philosophically conservative standpoint, I guess.
1: You're not ready to give it all up and just quit Amazon and join a farm? <laughs>
0: That's where well, no, mean brain always goes. Listen, on a personal level, yeah, probably. <laughs> like, I can I can get there fast on a personal level. I am skeptical of some of the solutions proposed in this article. I am skeptical that the government is the right entity to deal with the big data problem because what I see is a Congress full of people who don't even understand what the big data problem is, okay. right? I guess here's what I want to say. We can look at income inequality... And agree that is a problem without going to class warfare Mm. as our dispute with possible solutions to the problem. So much of what is in this article is a result of culture far more than our tax code. Mm -hmm. Is there room to improve our tax code? Sure. Is there room to change some of our regulatory systems to meet modern challenges? Sure. What bothers me here is a sense that I think the way the article ends bugs me because it feels like, well, the federal government is the solution to all of this. It might have pieces where it offers some solutions and some aid. But so much more of this is a is a matter, I think, of the soul than of our tax code. And so... I want to just ask my fellow conservatives to be more open to having conversations about income inequality, because if we want to be part of creativity and better social structures, we have to first acknowledge like what is right in front of our faces, which is that intergenerational elasticity is lower in America than in many, many other countries. Right? If we like we can just stand around all day saying, nope, American dream, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There's this is the land of opportunity. Okay, but like look at the data. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, I always appreciate talking with you, Sarah, about these issues, because I think we could take this to the next place if we had two more hours of, so what do we do about it? And you understand that when I push back on some of the proposed solutions, I am pushing back not because I deny the problem and not because I don't want to solve it. It is that I think we have to be careful in crafting solutions Not to push so hard and fast that, one, we don't actually solve anything. Two, we create more problems in the process. And three, we increase the sense of resentment that is causing these things to fester anyway. Because some of what comes through in this article, loud and clear, is that we are innovative in ways to express our contempt for one another. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And we are innovative in ways to play out our insecurity upon each other. And so... Like, let's say Bernie Sanders runs the world for a couple of years. I think you would see incredible innovation in the way that that our country responds to that negatively. And so part of what I love about Richard Rohr is standing in the middle. Knowing that we're complicit and that we can be part of the solution and allowing new forms of creativity to emerge from that something that we can work on together, and it might be slower than we want. It's not like our generation is going to be able to step back and go, well, solve that. We got it. Uh, But we can make a lot of progress. And I think some of that is just being willing to look through the lens of stepping back and saying, holy smokes, like I have been on a ladder to nowhere and I am climbing hard and I'm exhausted and I'm leaving lots of people behind me. And for what? So I think
1: a lot about the '60s. I think a lot about how the 60s got us here. I'm watching Bobby Kennedy for president. And it was really interesting, him watching the the overcorrection of the welfare state and the problems it created and um, private partner, public partnerships to sort of deal with, try to deal with some of those problems. Really interesting conversation. And I look at the 60s and I think about the legislation that came out of the 60s and how vital it was. And how, as a Democrat, I believe in big legislation like that. I believe in the government dreaming big, acting big. I do. And at the same time, I look back at that time period and everything that's come since and how we got here now. And I think we asked too much of people too quickly. We decided rightly that the moral and ethical thing to do was to act with regards to civil rights and women's rights and um, other equality and justice and fairness issues. And we acted. And I'm not even saying I would go back and do it differently. I'm just saying that we we ask too much of human beings. We just did. We asked them to wake up tomorrow, and because the government said so, to see the world and their fellow citizens completely differently. And I think that what we—and we dealt with that backlash, and I think we're still dealing with it. And we're still dealing with the fact that we forced things on people and gave them no pressure release valve to say, we know we disagree, but you're not a bad person. Even if you read about the hostility in that Supreme Court case with the baker— They use that word a lot, the way that they talk to this guy, hostility towards his religious views. And we, you know, I think as the progressive left decided that we were on the side of angels and everybody else was a devil. And I think that that in the short term, again, maybe that it's not even that the argument that wasn't the right thing to do, but the long game, I don't think has ended up the way a lot of us hoped it would. And I think a lot about the wisdom of Barack Obama, when he talks about it's a big country, it's a cruise ship, you can't go 90 degrees, it'll tip over, you have to go a little bit this way and hope in 50 years we'll end up where we want to. And when you look at the pace of change over the 60s, that was, I mean, we changed everything and we changed it rapidly. And I'm not sure if we're not still bailing out the ship from turning too quickly, and I hope that we can learn from that. And when we look at the income inequality we have now, I mean, I'm, I'm fearful that we'll just do what we've always done, which is it will create an extreme crisis. We'll, lives will be lost. People will suffer and we'll correct from the crisis because that's the only way that we can get together and decide on change that we all agree on. And I wish that we could do it differently. I wish that we could look around, like I said, and find a genuinely different way to deal with each other instead of yanking it away from you. Now I'm mad. I'm going to yank it back until we tear it to shreds. And I'm going to be honest. I'm worried we're tearing the country to shreds right now because we just keep yanking it back and yanking it back. And you're wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm right. Instead of saying, wait, what are we fighting over? And stop treating each other like the enemy, like we're in a
0: tug of war. in a conversation. And I think something that might be seized on is the idea that the sixties moved things too fast. And I can hear the sense of, well, that comes from a privilege of a position of privilege from you guys, Mm -hmm. right? Because your rights, you can be more patient because you don't have crucial rights on the line all the time. Right. And I want to acknowledge the truth of that. And so I think we're sitting here having this conversation not saying that anything that has been done needs to be Undo- undone. Yeah. Absolutely not. What I keep thinking about is how in this sort of pitched battle that we're having all the time, by the minute on Twitter, right, we are tearing away at relationship. And had Were President Trump capable of being in relationship, then you could have had a call between him and the French president about tariffs that involved real candor and criticism and hopefully a a path toward shared solutions. But that wasn't possible because our president, I think, is so eclipsed by his own insecurity. And I think that that's what we're all doing to ourselves in the way that we talk about income inequality, for sure. And most of our very divisive political issues, we're not allowing space for a relationship. I think if we trusted our relationships more and invested more in our relationships, very often we would come to the same conclusions. That's why there are some very small towns in Kentucky and elsewhere that have made progress on fairness issues more than bigger towns, right? Because in some spaces, relationships have been built and they make a difference. Part of what I admire so much about Equality Ohio that I mentioned before is that they are very active legislatively, but they are equally active culturally. You know, they talk about part of their mission is just to change hearts and minds because you cannot have true lived equality until people's hearts and minds are in the right place, right? Until so we're living in relationship. And so I just want to say, like, I think that's it I want to acknowledge our privilege. I also want to acknowledge that we we just aren't gonna be able to write some laws that that fix what ails us and what is pointed out in this article because it is so much more about living in community with each other. And every time we get into these Battles of words, especially on social media, it makes me think about, like, you can be right or you can be married, Mm -hmm. you know, and we can be right or we can live in community with one another.
1: Well, and here's what I want to say, too, about that. Yes, it is easy for me as a white lady to say oh, all the civil rights changes happened so quickly in the 60s because I wasn't living in the segregated South as a black person. I understand that point. It's easy for me to say, it would be easy for a man to say, oh, well, we changed abortion so quickly after decades of women suffering illegally under those laws. I understand that point. But here's my point. Yeah, in a way, we're not saying it's going to be undone. But guess what? It is being undone. It is being undone. Those protections are being undone. And I wonder if it's because we didn't deal with it culturally or we decided because the that we changed the laws and that was done. that was it. We won because we're not in relationship with each other. We're opposing one another. And so once I win, once I get the law I want, I win. I don't have to talk to you anymore. I don't have to carry on this conversation. I don't have to listen to your concerns about this situation because I'm on the moral high ground and I got my law passed and we're done here. And I don't think that's worked for us. It's not because I have some, you know, beating heart sadness for racists in the segregated South. That's not where this comes from. It comes because I want to maintain these gains and I want to build upon them. And I think our strategy has not done that. And that's what I want. And I want a law and I want a world in which instead of two steps forward and three steps back, we just... March forward. And I don't see that when I look at the gains of the 60s. And maybe that's we're not capable of that. Maybe that is just not the way of the human race. Maybe. I don't know. But, you know, I think that passing these laws and the way that we talk about them since then, you know, after we had our conversation about immigration, I texted Beth and I realized I said, I I just think the issue is that. You're not going to fix institutional racism by shaming individual racists like that's not how we do this. When you build up resentment over income inequality and it funnels its way into racism or sexism or the immigration debate, like it's that that's going to find a way so we can either address it or let it cut its path through our policy and our politics and erode the progress
0: we've made. I think that's right. And I think that that takes me back to, again, my favorite part of this article, which was it, it requires a different way of listening and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. a different way of, of making our points. It is easy to shame individual racists. It is easy to mock the 9.9%. It is easy to live from a sense of certainty that you have all the right answers about everything and that and even more than that even if you don't the other guys are worse yep right everything that they do is in bad faith or is a lie or is meant to increase dependency on them or what like whatever your talking points are all that stuff is easy i think it is much much harder to kind of sit in it and recognize that we, we win some and we lose some as a society, but the overall trajectory really depends on our relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. So next up, we will talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? I'm going to take this in a much lighter direction. Have you seen the Facebook meme going around about how your life can be defined by the song that was number one on your fourteenth birthday. Yeah. Okay, I looked mine up, and it is sad, Sarah. The number one song when I turned fourteen was "Take a Bow" by Madonna. The show is over. Say goodbye.
1: I mean, it's so <laughs> you're so depressing. close, Duke. I'm looking at the charts. If you'd just been born a little later, it would have been "This Is How We Do It" by Montel Jordan, and that would be an excellent song.
0: Uh, it would be Dance an excellent the song. There are really so many good. songs that year that were number one Were number one because, yes, I did go down a rabbit hole on this. That would have been very optimistic and fun and hopeful. But no, I was left with you took my love for granted. Why? Oh, why? <laughs> it's like I'm destined for um, sadness. It's, it was too bad. Okay. I think mine is good, though. I think mine is probably
1: on track. Mine is Waterfalls. By TLC. I love Waterfalls. Also very socially conscious. You know, there's about the drug trade and the HIV AIDS member in that part of the song. Mm -hmm. I'm happy with my choice. I'm a socially conscious person. I'm happy with Waterfalls as my song
0: well i'm glad for you what are we gonna do about me i mean if you go down the charts a little bit there's like vanessa williams the sweetest days which was a which is a lovely one that's fine i had that album this, i listened to it in the have bathtub you ever really loved a woman by brian adams i love that song i love all the Malith- melissa Etheridge, who was very big at the time so i'm good with all of that but take a bow man how depressing
1: or fantasy by mariah carey i wore a hole in that
0: album hole in it love that album What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah?
1: Um, I'm just living the summer dream right now. We had a big, you know, summery weekend. We went to pool parties. We went to the summer reading kickoff at our local library. It was Amos's birthday. Um, so we had a lot of birthday fun. The weather was just beautiful. We went for a 10-mile bike ride. We had a big – I just feel like the theme of our weekend was summer. Also, at the summer – reading kickoff. My library just gives out books, like free books. And I got this amazing book called The Book That Takes Its Time. And it's like a, it's a creative mindfulness book. And it has all these, oh, it's so fun. It has like little postcards you can tear out and send your friends and little mini journals tucked in the pages of the book. And um, little, like the first thing I did was like these little note cards and you write down like one beautiful moment from every day. And you can, you can tear out all the note cards and put them in a pretty jar. Oh, just like Books like that. Did you ever do the Dr. Seuss All About Me book where you like filled it in? and had all the activities to do. Mm-mm. Oh my god! I filled that two of them. I loved it so much. I just love books like like I like little like kind of grown up esque activity books, workbooks. I love a, I love a good workbook. Like it's all I can do not to take my children's summer reading. Like you know, do you do the summer slide books like between first and second grade? And you have like a little activity they do page they do every morning so they don't forget everything they learned. Oh no, we don't have that. Oh, we love those. We do those every summer. Because I totally forget everything I learned over the summer. So I was like, my kids are not going to do this. And they hate it. But I love it. It's all I can do not to like take it away and be like, well, I will cover in the book for the 15 minutes you read yesterday. Like, I just love books like that, like a little good workbook. I don't know what it is. But oh, this book is amazing. I'll put the link in the show notes, the book that takes its time. It's so cool. That's
0: fun. Well, thank you all for joining us for another episode. If you are interested in guest hosting with us at the end of July... Just a reminder, we need a two to five minute voice memo from you telling us which one you want to host with. It doesn't have to be a partisan match, just a good conversation. What you want to talk about in the main segment, what you want to talk about outside of politics and anything else we should know. It would be awesome if we could get those by next Friday, June 15th, because we're getting a lot of them and they're so good to listen to. And we want to make sure that we have time to really properly go through all of them and make our decisions. I will just be honest and tell you that I have cried about three times listening to your voice memo. Wow, that's big. Mostly because it is big for me. And it's just mostly because it's so wonderful to hear people's voices and to hear kind of what the show means to you guys and what you're thinking about. So thank you to everyone who has submitted one. You have until June 15th. If you haven't, and we'll be back with you on Friday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.
1: Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics or rate and review the podcast in the Apple Podcast Player.
0: Special thanks to our executive producers, George Niedermeyer, Tracy Putoff, James Randall, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers.
1: Find us on Twitter
0: at Pantsuit Politics, Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. You can also hear his work and get more nuance by checking out our podcast on family, relationships, and values, The Nuanced Life.